Diving into our final week of our series called The Principles, where we talk about the principles that are laying out our vision for the bridge. If I've heard one thing over and over and over and over and over again by people almost more on the periphery, not so much who've, who've said, hey, we're here, this is our family, but they dip their toe in, which is fine, and they want to go, okay, what's the vision? What, what, are the, you know, the, what are the five things you're going to do or that sort of thing? And uh, I've actually struggled with answering that, um, not because I don't have things in my heart, but because I want to dig deeper into the principles behind the vision because unprincipled vision is really just unbridled ambition. Like if you don't have principles behind the vision, the, the why behind the what, then the what kind of becomes the God. And so I really want to talk about principles behind the vision before we ever get into any of that. And we've talked about five principles over the past five weeks. Uh, we talked first about the power of the gospel to change lives. We are a church that believes that when you have an encounter with God, you walk away differently. You walk away delivered or you walk away with the power to walk out your healing perhaps over time, but what you don't do is live the next 20 years of your life just as jacked up as you were when you came to meet Jesus. Like, it gets better, you get stronger, growth happens. The second principle we've talked about along the line is the principle of sending. Jesus said, as my Father sent me, I am sending you. That was situational, he was sending people in that moment, but it was also precedential, not presidential, precedential, setting a precedent for the church sending people. And we have sent recently 10 from our body to Washington, D.C. for a prayer internship, some to lead, some to learn, but all to go and then come back with more than they left with. It will be good for our body. There are some that will say, we sent 10 out of, you know, this number, can we spare 10? We can't spare one. But we didn't spare them, we invested them. And uh, I've been in close contact with them kind of all along the way. Uh, a couple of quick pictures they've sent me. This uh, first picture, uh, this is where they are spending a significant amount of time in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. When I saw that picture, knew that uh, Josiah and Lima and Jacqueline and the Grenzes were praying there, praying there. I got to be honest, I got a little emotional. Kelsey and I spent many hours in front of this building asking God to move. And we've seen things happen that we asked for standing right there and praying. That really touched my heart to see that. Uh, this next picture, they are up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Josiah told me they actually got into the court, into the courtroom itself to pray. And invariably you tell these stories and somebody goes, well, are you saying that our prayers here don't work? I'm not saying that, okay? But there is something special about praying on site. 2,500 babies a day would tell you that that matters. And so they got into the court and prayed, and that just blew me away. That was something we never got to do while we were there. The last picture here, they're sitting in front of the Lincoln Memorial with their internship team. These are the people they're studying with. The guy there who's talking is Matt Lockett. Matt has led a rhythm of prayer in front of the U.S. Supreme Court for about 17 years. I mean, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes 24 hours a day. Uh, I don't know if it is right now, but for years, the Google image from the U.S. Supreme Court, if you'd zoom in on Google Earth, you saw Matt's team standing on the line, standing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court praying. So he's got experience in this. And so they are going to come back, having been sent out, they're going to come back different people. And we're excited about that. It's one of the reasons we send. 
And we're going to talk about them a lot because that's what family does when there's an empty chair at the table. We talk about them and we can't wait for them to come back. We may take our offering in a Home Depot bucket, but we're shaping history, okay? Now, those are not mutually exclusive. You know, you could do it different ways, but I'm, I'm just telling you, we are leaning into this idea of disproportionate influence of a small church that makes a difference in places. So that's why we send, even though it might seem counterproductive. Well, the, the next principle we talked about was the idea of vibrant community. Um, last week, we talked about the idea of eyes towards the future and where the world is going, where this train is going. Uh, it'd be in my heart, honestly, to do a, a teaching series and teach my way the rest of the way through Revelation. Over the last year, we've taught probably up to about Revelation 6, and uh, I would love to go beyond that. It's probably not a Sunday morning setting. It might be like a weeknight. Or this is one of the reasons why we need space. We need space to do some of these other things, but that's on my heart. Today, we're going to talk about the final one, uh, the rhythm of prayer that we want to aspire to. Now, two things going on in my head here at the same time. One, uh, I live in mortal fear of repeating myself to you. Okay? Like, it's, it drives me crazy. I know what happens. You're kind enough not to point it out, but it, it does bother me. And, uh, and there are a couple of stories I'm going to share today that I know we have shared before, but there are some stories that bear repeating, and these are important to us. And so some of you, I'm just acknowledging that to get the awkward out of the way as I'm wondering, do they know that I've told this before? I know that I've told this before, okay? So there, we got that out of the way. Uh, the other thing is, a lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning, you may look around and go, huh, the gap between where we are and what he is talking about is huge. The truth is the gap isn't that huge. However, I tend to hate to talk about things that we aren't doing. I, I, it just feels a little odd to me, but yet this is stirring in my heart and I want to lay it out there. And I was reminded this week as I was studying, uh, Mike Bickle, now 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, heard from the Lord that what was then Metro Christian Church would have a, what he called the Israel mandate. And that's all he got was that phrase. There will be a mandate on this house for ministry to Israel. So Mike, in all of his Mikeness, has a huge banner made that says the Israel mandate and hangs it on the wall of Metro for years. And people would go, Israel mandate, what's that? And he'd go, yeah, I don't know. It's like, you made a banner, you don't know what it means? Yeah, I don't know, the Lord will eventually tell us. And that he was so comfortable with talking about where they were not yet until the Lord brought it all into, into fashion. And now they have a massive impact in Israel. They're, they've got this connection. They, he was right. That drives me crazy. Like the idea of talking about what we are not yet drives me crazy, but we never become what we will become if we don't talk about what we're not yet. Okay, so I'm in that weird, no, I'm not going to make a banner, I'm not a banner guy, but the, uh, the things we're going to talk about today, you can look around, you could justifiably go, yeah, we're not there yet. Yeah, way to go, but we're not there yet, but that's where we're going, okay? Now, um, all through the Old Testament, I'm getting back to these stories that I'm going to revisit, all through the Old Testament, they would set up memorial stones. God would do something significant. They would set up a memorial, memorial stone. Generations later, they would visit. They'd run their hand over that stone. They'd remember what happened. Some of these stories are our memorial stones. And you go, well, we weren't there when they happened. No, we weren't there, but that's, that's where we come from, and we remember that, and we want to... So that's why I'm retelling a few of these stories. 
Those of you that have wondered, does the Lord have a word for me? I have one for you. I'm not talking about the teaching this morning. I hope that is. But specifically, I have a scripture that has your name on it. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 58. Let me make a few comments here before we go to the specifics. Isaiah 58. First eight verses of Isaiah 58 have your name written on them. They are not written to a king. They're not even written to the Jews at this point or a prophet. They are written to the person who is doing their best to walk out what God wants them to be but can walk into church and say, surely the Lord will separate me from his people. Like, to the person who goes, I don't know if I belong here. To the person who looks at the history in God and go, to those people, multiple times in Isaiah 58, he says, don't say that. Don't say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And then in verse 6, he picks up and he's talking to people like us. He's not talking to the Jews. He's not talking to his prophets or the kings. He's saying in Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. These are the people who were not God's people, but make a decision, I'm God's people. They chose this. And to be his servants to everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. So if you're here this morning, I want you to kind of sit up a little bit and engage because Jesus has your number and Isaiah 56 here in this passage is written to people. It's not written to the Jews, although it applies to the Jews. It's not written to the prophets, although it applies. It's written to us, people who would say, okay, I'm in. These, these are the people he's talking about. I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my people shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now this phrase that he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people, sounds familiar because you've heard it in other places. God is so focused on what his house will be known for that when we see Jesus at his most unhinged, okay, in his entire earthly ministry, when we see him, the closest thing, I don't know, if, I hope it's not disrespectful to say Jesus kind of loses it, but the only place you could ever say that Jesus kind of loses it, he uses this phrase. As he goes into the temple and he realizes that the temple system is way off track. He comes in, he finds money changers in the temple. Money changers were in cahoots with the priests. There was a religious system to cheat people out of their redemption and keep them poor, to take their money and never really offer sacrifices for them. And this religious system had taken over his house. And he turns over the tables, makes a whip, drives them out. This took, you know, he didn't really lose it. He planned this. Where are you going, Jesus? I'll be back. Where are you going? I'm making a whip. Makes a whip, goes in, chases them out, and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. Doesn't say it's going to be a house of small groups, although we love small groups. Not even a house of preaching. Not a house of, he says, it's going to be a house of prayer. We desperately need this course correction in the American church because the version of Christianity that is being sold to people like those fake sacrifices that were being sold in the time of Jesus, that version of Christianity is not a house of prayer version. 
it's a religious version that masquerades as a shortcut to God. If you do X, Y, Z, you'll find him. Make your sacrifice, buy your pigeon, feel better about it, and walk away. We've got to be called to prayer, but we're sidetracked, sidetracked by this self-help religious movement that promises us a better life in five steps and a book. Out of morbid curiosity, I looked at the 20 top-selling Christian books at Barnes & Noble. Okay? Of the 20 top Christian books of Barnes and Noble. There was one of them that might possibly address prayer. And it wasn't clear. There was an unbelievable amount of books written to women telling them they're beautiful and they're God's favorite and they don't have to be an Instagram model. Almost all of those books have a picture of the author on the front who coincidentally looks like an Instagram model. How did prayer, which is so integral to Jesus' heart, become so ancillary to ours? Like, how did we end up looking at that as an add-on when he says, no, that's actually the whole deal? That we can sell Be Your Best books all day, but who's in line to pray? And what does it mean that we're not? Yet, if you ask people, do you want to see revival? Almost universally, yes. There's our hearts jump. We hear about this at Asbury. Like some of you, it's moving. We, oh, we want that. We want it ish. I had the glory of youth pastoring in the 90s, which is a different world. Uh, it was a, shall we say, less litigatious society. All right, you didn't get sued for every little thing. And uh, as you, so all the games that you played, you would never play now. But we played this game where you'd line up, maybe this would probably still be safe. We line up uh, kids in a line and they would, uh, it was a relay and they'd run to a bat, right? And they'd put their head on the bat and they'd spin around like 20 times and then they would run back to the line. And some of you are old enough to remember this, you know. And you remember them running like, like, you know, they, they'd see where they want to go, but they do this number, and, you know, so they just lay over. The game's completely over. You know, worship team's already started, and there's some kids laying out in the field because they played this game. All right? Put a pin in that idea. Okay, we'll come back to that. A.W. Tozer was a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor who was entirely self-taught, never went to Bible college, uh, completely self-taught, started writing uh, pamphlets for the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, and one of his denominational officials are like, oh, you're pretty good at this. You should write books. He starts writing books. In his life, he writes 16 books. He wrote like a madman. But then after he passed away, they were able to take his other writings and assemble 45 other books. Phenomenal writer. His work became widely read, far wider than his private life would ever hint at. He, he died in his 60s, never owned a car in his life, and committed most of his writing royalties to people who needed finances. He would just say, this, this one's for you, and they would get the finances for that book. Remember the spinning around of a game, the bat spinning that? A.W. Tozer invented that. I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> Some of you are like, no kidding. No, but... I think he would have understood it because he said this, to desire revival at, and at the same time to neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. 
to say, I want revival, I want that, but to neglect prayer is like you're the kid coming off the bat going, I want to go that, have you ever played that game? I want to go that way, I know where I want to go, but I, I can't get there to save my life. To neglect prayer, even though it's in your heart, I want to go that way, you're never going to go that way. Many are pointing the right direction, but can't get their feet under them, and they are stumbling because the desire of, to revival without a life of prayer is to wish one way and to go another. That is why if we want to see what I believe we want to see, we've got to set our personal lives and our body, our church, on course to be people of a rhythm of prayer. I'm talking about building practices and times in your life where you talk to and listen to God and those prayer times are primarily around the idea of who he is and what he wants rather than who we are and what we want. Most of us have at least a bachelor's degree, some have a master's or even a PhD in need or want prayer. Okay, this is what I need, this is what I want. And that's legit, okay? Like, the Lord hears those prayers. But we've got PhDs in that. Most of us are about in the third grade in regarding to praying about who he is and how he speaks to us. As you matured, your conversations with your parents changed a little bit, didn't they? A little bit? I mean, you never became peers, but the things you talked about on your 40th birthday were not the same things you talked about on your 7th birthday. On your 40th birthday, you did not tell your aging father, I hope I got a bike. Okay, because as a little kid, in your immaturity, all you talk about what you want. Then you get a little older and you actually treasure this person in a different way and you begin to talk more about who they are. Most prayers that we pray really are crisis prayers. Maybe it's personal crisis, maybe it's a crisis by proxy. You know, I don't have a crisis now, but you got one, I'll pray for you. And God hears those prayers. And there are times for crisis prayers, but sometimes we end up Praying crisis prayers because we never developed a rhythm of speaking to God and listening to him in a way that might have headed off the crisis to begin with. So we find ourselves begging God to do roadside repairs because we didn't do scheduled maintenance. There are crisis prayers that we have all felt a little sheepish about because the crisis could have been averted. So in order to deal with those things proactively and because the God of universe is the source of our life, we've got to normalize the idea of a rhythm of prayer in our life where we set appointments with God and we keep them and we fight for them. Most crisis prayer involves outside circumstances. A life of prayer alters our internal life as we dedicate time before the Lord and rather than swooping in in the last minute and changing the circumstances, he proactively begins to change us and we realize that, wow, there's not as many crises as there were. A rhythm of prayer will do things within you that crisis prayer cannot. Finding your spot before the Lord in a routine way will change your spiritual DNA and it'll give you strength to stand in times that you did not have strength to stand in before. Last week we talked about focusing on where this train is going and I admitted what you all know, which is I have this massive love for history. And uh, I'm very 
focused on where we're going yet, there's going to be a little time for a short history lesson regarding the ideas of high church and low church. Okay, how many of you, raise your hands, have you ever heard these phrases, high church and low church? A couple of you, okay. I took an Instagram poll. I said, are you familiar with this? Is it a little fuzzy or do you think I've made this up? 50% of the people thought I completely made it up. Of those 50%, most of them are right here in this room. No, I did not make this up, okay? I was like, what does this mean about that most of you don't believe me here? High church refers to belief or practices of worship, liturgy, or theology that emphasize formality and resist modernization. Very formal high church idea, okay? Low church would be the opposite of that. Very informal. Uh, They don't follow a liturgy. Their worship practices are different. Low church was actually a derogatory term that was first coined by the Anglicans. The Anglicans looked at anybody who wasn't Anglican, and said, well, you know, we are high church, we're formal, the collar, long, the whole bit, and, uh, and we'll, okay, we'll call the Catholics high church too, because you can't out high church the Catholics, but they said, the rest of you people, for the most part, except for a couple of Presbyterians, you are all low church. What happens when you tell a group of people they can't be a part of your group? They think your group is stupid. I don't want to be a part of your group. So the low church people went, fine, if you're going to be that way, we're going to go the other way. And of course, the groups they considered low church quickly took pride in the fact that they weren't high church. Low church didn't embrace the liturgy, but emphasized personal experience and evangelism and eventually uh, embraced the power of the Holy Spirit. That, That all was the low church movement. When the Holy Spirit broke out in the 1900s in Azusa Street, it didn't get much lower than that. Azusa Street Revival, once they outgrew the the house they were meeting in because so many people stood on the porch that the porch fell off, moved to the good location, which they had to clean out because it was a livery stable. For those of you that did not watch Little House on the Prairie, what that means is they had to haul the horse manure out before they could meet in it. It was as low church as you could get. There were no Anglicans in that meeting. By the early 1900s, the lines were pretty drawn. High church models were followed by Catholics, Anglicans, some Presbyterians, a few other groups. Low church examples would have been Baptists, Pentecostals, independent churches, what we'd call now non-denominational. They were low church. If you grew grew up going to church where there were candles and incense and the priest wore a collar, you grew up high church. If you grew up in a church where someone would show up with a shofar in a sequin bag, and try and sell you essential oils. You grew up low church. High churches tended to be more liberal socially. The Anglican Church or the Church of England, I don't know if you saw this in the last week, is now searching for gender neutral terms to use for God. That's Church of England. Don't blame your Anglican neighbors about that here in the US. There's been no indication that, but that's generally high church trends liberal Low church trends socially conservative, which is why most of the pro-life movement has been low church, with the exception of the Catholics. Catholics have have held that banner, and we're grateful for that. Somewhere in the middle, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I'm fascinated. Somewhere in the middle are Methodists, some who really would like to be high church, but they can't get away from their their history of, of John Wesley. 
And so they've got a little bit of identity crisis right now, and they may split. We don't know. All these are massive generalizations, but if you were high church, you love pageantry, rich, deep academics, and often shrinking congregations. If you were low church, you believed in the call to preach, and you might have been a little bit skeptical about training, and so you'd let a lot of people preach who maybe shouldn't have, and you ended up with a lot of sermons that were mostly smoke and no fire. There were exceptions, but largely the church separated in these two worlds. Those that loved the liturgy and the smells and the bells and felt a little superior for it, and those that would have never done those things and felt a little superior for it. In this vast gulf between these two schools of thoughts, does anybody dare to ask God what the Bible thinks? You know, does anybody go, okay, where, where do you land here, Lord, on all of this? There we go. Because no matter where we are on that spectrum, we operate with the assumption that God's really on our side. High church thinks God probably is high church. Low church thinks God's definitely low church. When we start thinking that way, we miss things. There's this comical example in Joshua 5, 13 and 14. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you, are you one of them or are you with us? And he said, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I'm neither Anglican nor independent snake handler. I am neither high church nor I am low church. There's actually, I am a third way here. So when you're digging in your heels of what your church should be, high church or low church, and you ask the angel of the Lord what side he's on, he doesn't much care for this debate. As someone with admittedly low church roots, when we dismiss the idea of ritual or a rhythm of prayer because we value spontaneity and we think that the rhythm of praying regularly at the same place or time is too formal and we're prophetic people and we don't do that, then we have the audacity to ask the Lord is he for us or for them? His answer doesn't change. In fact, you almost wonder if this is what he's thinking in 1 Thessalonians 5. Because this passage is a little bit preemptive for this debate. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he mashes up the idea of ritual and rhythm of prayer right up against the call to holiness and prophetic ministry. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus in you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So we are told of certain constant behaviors, rejoicing as a ritual. I'm going to rejoice, not because I'm all that happy right now, but because I realize who he is, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray as a ritual. Not because I'm in a crisis right now, but because I will be one day. So I'm going to make it a ritual to do that. I'm going to be grateful as a ritual. I'm going to be thankful for the donuts, even if they didn't bring my favorite kind. I'm going to be grateful. And we're told that these behaviors would actually express the will of God in your life. For this is the will of Christ Jesus in you. And those are matched up with the don't quench the spirit, embrace the prophetic, and the call to personal holiness. It almost sounds like he's describing something that is neither high church, no lower church, and not medium, but both. 
Here's the irony. The low church crowd that many of us come from loves the freedom of the Holy Spirit and then went on to produce its own rituals while complaining about the other rituals. Say, rituals? I got no stinking rituals. Yes, you do. What are, our, what are the rituals of the bridge, okay? Donuts. And if you think that's not a ritual, wait till they don't come. Uh, 30 minutes of worship. We do about 30. Would it be more spiritual if we did 90? No, that'd just be a different ritual. But we kind of do about the same thing. We just do it. It's not, it's, they're not bad. It's just the way we do things. Are they God-ordained? No, not really. Don't confuse God's ordination with our expectations or way of doing things. Rituals or rhythms are not for God. Actually, they're for us. Rituals exist in our lives to help us make decisions in advance. Okay, now hear me on this. This is all going towards a ritual of prayer. I have a great friend in uh, Nashville, Lyle Phillips. Lyle pastors in Nashville, and he talks about his nighttime rituals. Every night, Lyle lays out his clothes for the next morning like a third grader. Like, this is what I'm going to wear, okay? Every night, he packs his backpack for the office. Every night, finds his wallet, puts it with his car keys by the coffee pot. Every night, he prepares everything he can for his breakfast the next morning. Every night. He said, if I'm out late, I come home 1 o'clock in the morning, I do all of these things. He's got a little phrase. He says, nighttime Lyle works hard to make it easy for morning Lyle. That's his ritual. It's not morally superior for him to do that or for you to do it in the morning, but it is remarkably helpful to have made those decisions already when you've woken up. What am I going to wear? Oh, I'm going to wear what I laid out the night before. You can reorder your life by making decisions in advance so you don't have to make them in the moment. Leaving all of those things to themselves is a ritual in itself. But that ritual is called evening Lyle being cruel to morning Lyle. So we are all people of rituals. Some of those rituals pay off for us. Some of them make life harder for us. And all of us have rhythms. So as long as we're going to have them, let's have rhythms that affect and reflect 1 Thessalonians here. Let's be intentional and systemic about rejoicing. Let's make a ritual of prayer. Let's make a ritual of gratitude. Let's set appointments and do that. Now, there's a false fear here that if uh, we make prayer systemic or we set a time and we always keep that time, that we're going to make it insincere. That, well, if I plan it, is it really my heart to do it? If you plan it and keep your plan, the Lord sees your heart. And we hang our, our hat on that scripture in Matthew 6, 7. Well, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard from many words. Well, we, we want to be spontaneous. We don't want to plan things. But in our fear of making it insincere, in our demanding spontaneity and praying only when we feel like it, we've actually made it rare because we don't feel like it as much as we thought we would when we said we didn't want to make a plan. We think we will pray when we feel compelled, but we don't feel that compelled. And as often as we think, we don't pray as often as we should. Paul charged us at the tail end of talking about putting on uh, the whole armor of God. He tells us in Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. He's like, make this a part of your regular life. 
If you don't make it a part of your regular life, it's not a part of your life. Sounds like Paul would have been an advocate for a rhythm of prayer just as much as he was an advocate for the gifts of the Spirit. He would have been puzzled at this high church, low church debate. He would have looked at us like the angel of the Lord going, I'm kind of above this. Ritual plays a part in your life. Spontaneity plays a part in your life. Let me give you a very quick, short history. These are the stories that some of you have heard these before. Of systemic prayer, prayer on a regular basis that goes way past high church and low church questions and change the world as they know it. Throughout history, there have been groups who have valued setting appointments with God at a specific time and building a rhythm of prayer. And those rhythms of prayer changed the world they lived in. Three quick examples. These are our memorial stones that we rest our hands on and say we remember even though we weren't there. 400 years after the birth of Christ, a slave was captured in England, was taken to Ireland, where he was held for years, eventually escapes, makes it back to England. When he gets back to England, he is so consumed with concern over the eternal state of his captors that he goes back to Ireland, not as a slave, but as an evangelist. Imagine 1830s, 1840s, a slave escaping from a plantation, making it all the way back to Africa, and then saying, what about my masters? Do they know Jesus? And coming back as an evangelist. That's, that's how like, gripping this is. His name was St. Patrick. And St. Patrick was, you know, we think of him as this kind of mystical character. He had over and over and over had encounters where he saw angels. He had one encounter in a valley near what is now Bangor, Ireland, where he saw angels standing on either side of the hills singing about the glory of the Lord back and forth. He called it the Valley of Angels. St. Patrick goes on to die. About 150 years later, a priest named Comgall decided, let's do the dream. Let's do what the vision that he had, and he laid out an appeal for the men of Europe to come and join him in prayer there at Bangor, Ireland. About 3,000 men moved there with their families. They divided those 3,000 men up into three sections, eight-hour sections, and they started an antiphonal prayer meeting where they would sing the Bible back and forth right there in Bangor in the, in the abbey. That prayer meeting went on for 200 years, around the clock. People would pray, live their lives, have children. Their children would step up and take their place on the line. That prayer meeting continued back and forth and back and forth. A rhythm of prayer, a ritual, if you will, that went on that when Europe fell into the dark ages... There's a, there's a book called um, How the Irish Saved Civilization. It's not a Christian book, but it tells the story of how when Europe falls into the Dark Ages, the priests of Bangor, who for hundreds of years had been singing and reading the word of the Lord, spread out across Europe and reintroduced literacy to Europe. Changed the world because of a ritual of prayer. Fast forward 1,500 years. 
In the early 1700s, a young German count named Zinzendorf inherited some land from his family, and he opened it up to religious groups, kind of wide open. The first groups that showed up was this group called the Moravians, who were being persecuted because they'd walked away from the Anglican church. And these Moravians moved there and started a prayer meeting, different than the others, different than the, the, the large groups of men singing back and forth, just two by two in a little hut. And they would sign up and go around the clock and pray there. They prayed like that around the clock in that little space for 125 years, two by two. Now we hear these things and we think there must have been thousands of them. 300. 300 people that maintained this prayer meeting for 125 years, God takes small bodies of people and gives them disproportionate influence. This group of people launched what is known as the Protestant missions movement, missions of how we understand it, people supporting and going. and other. There was none of that before the Moravians. The Moravians started that. And they had this cry when they sent out their first missionaries that headed to an island in the Caribbean. They had sold themselves to a slave ship so they could get a ride to this island where they could minister to the other slaves. And as their families gathered on the docks to see them off and the boat pulled away and their family were weeping, knowing we'll never see them again, they declared they were going to the mission field at great risk so that the Lamb of Jesus would receive the reward of his suffering. That kind of fervency and the modern missions movement as we came out of a small group of people that said, let's make prayer a ritual. Not repeat ourselves the same thing over time, but let's just make an appointment with God and let's keep it. Fast forward. Early 1900s in Wales. A revival swept across Wales at the same time that it was touching Azusa Street here in the United States. Most of you have heard a lot about Azusa Street. You don't know much about Wales just because you've heard the local history. But it's said that in Mount Pleasant Church in Swansea in Wales, a big building that they had built that had never been full, that once this revival started for 20 years, they had to put chairs in the aisles because there were so many people attending. Say, so how did that happen? Evangelist Evan Roberts had wept in prayer over Wales for 13 years before anything moved. And it started with this experience, this rhythm. He describes it this way. Let me just read this to you. I don't think we've got this for the screen, but this is Evan Roberts talking about his experience and how he got started with a regular time of prayer. One Friday night last spring, while praying beside my bed before retiring, I was taken up to a great expanse without time or space. It was communion with God. Before this, I had a far-off God. I was frightened that night, but never since. So great was my shivering that I rocked the bed, and my brother, being awakened, took hold of me, thinking I was ill. After that experience, I was awakened every night. This was most strange, because through the years, I'd slept like a rock, and no disturbance in my room would awaken me. From that hour, I was taken up into divine fellowship for about four hours. What it was, I cannot tell you, except that it was divine. About five o'clock, I was again allowed to sleep until about nine. At this time, I was taken up again into that same experience in the earlier hours in the morning until about noon. This went on for three months. 
for three months, this guy has a ritual of up in the middle of the night crying out for tenderness before the Lord. One local historian that was a part of the revival wrote this. If it be asked why the fire of God fell on Wales, the answer is simple. Fire falls where it is likely to catch and spread. As one has said, Wales provided the necessary tinder, crying out to God day after day for the fire of God to fall. This was not a merely little talk with Jesus, but daily organized, agonizing intercession. They set their hearts on a rhythm of prayer And at some point, the heavens opened. And it said that 100,000 people in short order gave their lives to Christ. We find repeatedly massive moves of God precipitated, not so much by preaching, and I like to preach, not so much even by worship that is devoid of prayer, but by prayer and spending time on your face before him. When Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial system became like cast by the wayside. Believers, young Christians didn't look at the the system of sacrificing animals as effective anymore. They said the official sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice has died. We no longer sacrifice animals in, in our faith. We sacrifice our time and attention as we are commanded to in Hebrews 13 where it says, through him let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Regular times of prayer and worship were a regular part of the life of the first century church. They kept appointments with God that they had made. We've got this idea that they just kind of hung around until Jesus showed up. No. They strategically set times. Acts 3 and 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Even after Jesus ascended to heaven, they would go to the temple and pray three times a day. Just a part of their rhythm. They weren't going to the hour of sacrifice. They said, no, the sacrifice has already been made, but prayer were there. They were gathering to pray in a rhythmic schedule. Was praying at certain times something they just carried over, like they just didn't know any better? Like, is that just they? No, it was very, very intentional. There's a historical volume called the Didache. This is not scripture, but it was written about the second century. The official title is this, the Didache, the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. So this was a record of things that the apostles said that was not ever canonized, but It was kind of a how-to manual on how to do church in the first and second century. It included things like how they served communion and how to run the service and just different things like that. It was a handbook for the church. And it's interesting that the Didache gives a ritual or a rhythm of prayer, both how and when. This is how the Didache describes it. It says, but after you are satisfied with food, give thanks. And interesting, they prayed after the meal. There's actually a little logic to that. They prayed after the meal, and they prayed this way. We give thanks, O Holy Father, for the holy name which thou didst made into the tabernacle in our hearts. For the knowledge and faith and immortality which you did made known to us through Jesus your servant. To be, to thee be glory forever. And it goes on, and they pray, they included different things in this little prayer. What is included in this? At every, behind every meal, they give thanks. They prayed a variation of the Lord's Prayer. 
They prayed, and this is at the end of every meal, for conviction of sin. They cried out for people to know him. And then they cried out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. What would our lives be like if we found a window of time or three where we very briefly gave thanks, said a variation of the Lord's Prayer, prayed there'd be conviction of sin, cried out for people to know Jesus, and then said, oh Lord, come quickly. How would that change our lives? Some of you are a little disturbed by this because this sounds legalistic. No, this is opportunistic. I am trying to find space in my life to do this. I can't, I'm, I'm not at three a day right now, but I, I, I want to get there. And you know what I find is what starts like a ritual becomes very intimate. Like what starts is, okay, I'm going to make myself do this, becomes real quick, I, I get to do this. The other night, I'm up early, and I'm like, this is an opportunity. I can do this. I take this. I start to pray. Through, and I'm telling you, I begin to see your faces, and I begin to pray for you as a pastor at a depth that I have not often found. Like, I'm seeing your faces, and I'm feeling just this deep intercession, and I'm feeling these waves of love for you as I see your faces. Would that happen had I not keep the appointments? not as easily. When we find a rhythm of prayer, God does things within the context of that rhythm that change us. And suddenly we have the best of high church and low church. It's high church because we're setting times to do this. It's low church because it's messy and he is moving deeply in our spirit. And it's like the angel going, see, I told you, there is no, no one side to this. Even before the Didache, even before the apostles going to the uh, place of prayer three times a day, all the way go back, you go back to Daniel. What is one of the things Daniel got in trouble for? Praying three times a day, Daniel 6.10. Daniel always prayed to God three times every day. Three times every day he bowed on his knees and prayed. And this, is, this isn't something new. This is something ancient. If down through history, from Daniel and even before Daniel, through the apostles, through history, if rhythmic prayer, setting appointments with God, has been what's changed the world, why would we not do this? Luke 12, 37, blessed are the servants from whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he'll dress himself for service and he will have them recline at the table and he will come and he will serve them. He's saying for those who are watching and waiting, and looking for me intentionally, I will come and I will serve them. Before the return of the Lord, it will not be unusual to hear of gatherings of Christians who will pray through the night, crying out Maranatha. It will become a ritual, but it will become rich. Jesus will return for a watching and waiting people, or the bridegroom's not coming back. Like, he's going to have that. That is his reward. I want to just challenge you. I, I love these moving services where at the end we have great times of ministry, all that. This isn't so much a, is your spirit feeling anything, as much as it is, is your mind making a decision? And this is what I want to challenge you with. Set an appointment with God. One, start with one. 15 minutes. 
But that is a ritual, and unless your house is burning down, you will keep that appointment. You set an alarm, do whatever. I know you're busy. I will, I will compare schedules with you any day. We're all busy. You're all going to be busy doing something. Be busy with this ritual. Okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to pray. 15 minutes. If you can add another 15, if you can make it to three at different times, I'm telling you, it'll be rich. Maybe not the first time, but at some point, the Lord breaks into your yes. The other thing that I want to challenge us to is I believe what we are called to as a body will be some sort of rhythmic corporate prayer meetings where there is a space where we can gather. You're saying, are you saying we're all going to come together three times every day? I, that's impractical. No. But as a body, we will host some sort of prayer meeting three times a day in a, in a unified space. One of the reasons we need space. We need space to meet, but honestly, we can struggle along this way. But during the week, we don't have anything. I want to be a group of people who set a rhythm. And, you know, you got to wonder in the early years, did anybody know who the Moravians were? Probably not. But they set their hearts on corporate prayer and meeting together, sometimes just two people. And they changed history. We will be a place of disproportionate influence. I don't know if we'll ever be very big. I wish, I wish we would get humongous. I really would. I'd love it. I don't know if it'll ever happen. But what I do know is we'll have influence. And we will have influence because we set ourselves to be people of prayer. Stand with me if you would. Father, Right now, I ask that you would bless us with hunger. I ask that you would bring what we have learned this morning back to us over and over again. Lord, for people who are putting their heads on a pillow tonight, I pray that you would stir them to grab the phone and set an appointment for tomorrow. I pray that a rhythm of prayer would become a hallmark of the family of the bridge. God, give us the fortitude to set the right rituals in our lives. Right now, we commit to you. If this is your yes, just inwardly commit to him a segment of time every day. I'm going to do this. It is my new ritual. And I will do this until... And Lord, as a church body, we say yes to the calling of a rhythm of prayer. Ministering to you, not crisis prayers, but prayers of what are you saying, what are you doing, what do you need me to know? Lord, I bless these people. I thank you for them. Lord, I thank you for the faces that appeared to me in my, in my prayer time this week. Take these dear ones, draw them deep into your heart, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Need we say it? Go Chiefs. This God.